Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and this is the second part of the two-part Junior Campbell special podcast. In this show, what we'll be doing is is embarking at the start on uh, Junior's solo years and, and potentially, hopefully, towards the end, reflecting back over his uh, remarkable career in music. Um, but um, you've just heard Hallelujah Freedom. Was that the debut uh, single, Junior? Uh, no, it wasn't. There was one before that um, called Goodbye Baby Jane, which was um, sounds like a Marmalade record. Yeah. It was, um, you know, a good record, good pop song, catchy and everything else. And it looked like it was going to do the business. But unfortunately, um, there was this slight problem of the News of the World scandal came out. Right. right. When a, cer- a certain member of the band who had a big um, gripe sort of, somehow got um, and had got sacked. This was long after my time, may I say. Not long after, six months after my time. Had um, Sure, he'd got the elbow and uh, there was a story running around which ran for three weeks in the news of the world, you know, exposing all the goings on of a pop band on the road. And um, so the TV shows I had lined up for Goodbye Baby Jane were suddenly... Pulled. Everything was pulled, as were the Marmalade records. Everything was pulled. So, um, you know, that is a shame. But um, I'm afraid that's the way it goes. And incidentally, the funny thing is, although a lot of people think, oh, I'd, I had left the band and I wrote Hallelujah Freedom about the band, it's it's just not true. And and in fact, I Pat Faley's Pat only left us a couple of years ago. So um, he was a great, great friend of mine. And um, we all stayed in touch. In fact, I'm not sure many people know this, but the first single that the Marmalade had out, is a, which was a hit, Cousin Norman, mm. immediately after my release, eh, my release, you know, <laughs> my departure, I actually scored the, the horns on it. So uh, my name's on the record, which makes it even more confusing, arrangement by Junior Campbell. But um, So, you know, that that was it. So Hallelujah Freedom just came up because, I, you know, what had happened is that Dick Rowe had said to me, you've left the band. Strictly speaking, you're under contract, though. We'd still like you to do something. I said, no, I want to do other things, Dick. I quite fancy exploring the world of film and, you know, just trying to get, you know, educate myself just to do, try and do something else because I'd been in the band 10 years. I'd started when I was 14 and I was now coming up in 24. And um, I thought there has to be other things to do in life rather than continued touring and the pressures of coming up with singles and albums. And the Marmalade's first really big hit had been back in effectively 68 and this was now 1971. So the longevity of a career in a pop band, even if you're the Beatles, isn't um, that long, do you know what I mean? So he said, no, he said, yeah, we'll stay with us as a producer. So I thought, all right, so... um, they gave me a contract as a producer and I had to come up with it again, something like three singles per year and blah, blah, blah. They actually offered me a job. They wanted me to go and work at Decca Records in the Embankment as a part of head of A&R development and uh, find artists and arrange and produce them. But, you know, I've never been much interested in mm. other people's music in a recording studio. Do you know what I mean? I just find the whole process in lots of ways quite tedious. And I'm sure some of your listeners will think you get, you know, you're so lucky. You're so lucky to be able to do this, grab everything you can. But I, I really, you know, I was my first child was coming up, and um, I had a lot of money in the bank, 
week and um, I was feeling a, a bit pompous and a bit proud of myself thinking I'm going to do other things. But anyway, contract signed, three singles. So anyway, the first one I brought out was Goodbye Baby Jane, which I told you what happened. So the next one I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to do this any longer. I'm going to do what I really want to do in terms of on my own. And I, me and the rest of the band and every band in Scotland had always been firmly entrenched in Motown and Soul and everything else. We could all emulate it as best you know we could. So um, I had always loved Funk Brothers, who do all the backing on every one of the Motown greatest. And um, the chord part on them, um, which is in the Onion song, and is also in um, uh, You Keep Me Hanging On in the Bridge. Um, I thought, I'm going to do something of that. So that basically is the chord person, which is the intro to Hallelujah Freedom. And then from then on, it just took me to places I'd never been before. And I changed my voice and went for it. I had um, Ray Duffy, Remy Duffy, who was the original Gaylord's drummer, who had got married and gone back to Scotland. He came in and played drums on it, played drums and all my solo stuff, I think. And... Um, Graham Knight from the band, he played the bass on it. Dean didn't like that much because he didn't want Dean, uh, didn't want Graham to be on top of the pops with me because it associated right. you know, different things, which I respected. So anyway, Pat had also left. He left six months after me because he said, oh, I'm, my, my pal's now in the band, I'm leaving now. So he went, Pat went to run all our publishing interests. So he did, he mimed to the bass part on him, top of the pops. And um, it was a great session. And uh, I thought, I'm going to have two girls on here, a la Joe Cocker, Ray Charles type thing, you know what I mean? And I called um, uh, Decca and I said, look, can you get me um, two session singers, girls, hard singers, you know, who can actually, not just who's Naz singers, but, you know, people who can do the business. So anyway, I went to the session and the door opened and in walked Barry St. John, who's a Scots lassie, who's a great singer. And I'd known Barry over the years. She was brilliant. And I was so delighted to see her. And uh, she said to me, this is my friend, um, Doris. Yeah. <laughs> Would you believe it was Doris Troy? Yeah. Uh, who had, you know, just one look. And, you know, what are you going to do about it? And all these sort of things. It just, And I was absolutely bowled over by it. And um, Doris, she ha- must have been 10 months pregnant. She was absolutely huge, and I was really twitching. I thought, I hope we can get through this session because she's going to have to belt us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But of course, I think it was the second take for the girls, and that was it. So um, I was in my glory, and um, and the record came out, and thankfully for me, it was pretty successful. It was, and that success continued into 1973 with Sweet Illusion. Then same plot, you know, exactly the same plot. The intro. I think I nicked unconsciously, of course, from um, I'm Still Waiting, Diana Ross's record. Mm. And uh, that just took me other places again. And I, I think everything was in there apart from the Kenwood mixer from the kitchen, because the sink was certainly in there on the record. I put everything on it. And uh, it's again, that's a big favourite of mine. I like that record.
This time, although you'd had huge success with Marmalade, you're there up front as the solo star or solo artist. Was that a different feeling for you because your name was out there this time? Yeah, I, I never liked that. I mean, a good mate of mine was Dave D. And uh, Dave, I loved him. He was a great pal of mine for years and years and years. If he opened the fridge door in the kitchen and the light came on, he would do 20 minutes. He was just born <laughs> for show business. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I know loads of people like that, but I never liked it. I loved the band in the very early days when we were, you know, just banging away and people were going rapturous about the band. But when it, the hits arrived and it got to... Let's say mild adulation. I didn't like any of that at all. I never much like, I can talk for the world as everyone's noticed, but I don't like much um, the spotlight. You talked about at the start in terms of how, how you were retained as either A&R or in the production side, and you actually helped uh, Barbara Dixon establish her solo career with the um, the album and single Answer Me, which was a huge success uh, in the mid-70s as well. Absolutely. Although, of course, that was nothing at all to do with Decca. That was, um, again, that was Pat Fairley, right. my colleague from the Marmalade Mile. He he had carried on with our publishing interests. And then um, Robert Stigwood, who obviously had the Robert Stigwood organization, the Bee Gees and um, Yvonne Ellerman and everyone. He asked Pat to go and run everything from there. And uh, RSO, they had signed Barbara after her performances in John Paul. George Ringo and Bert, the, the theatre show, uh, which she was astounding and singing Beatles songs. And um, they had signed her. And uh, I think they had got Jerry Rafferty in to try something, you see if they could get a record, but apparently it was a bit of a disaster, which is a shame. Um, and uh, they ha- I had this artist and they really didn't quite know what to do with her. And of course, Fairley, Pat Fairley being Pat, said, oh, Get Wally in, he'll sort it out for you. So um, they asked me to meet Barbara, which I did. Her and I got on like a house on fire, and she had a couple of songs um, of her own, which were really nice, but not quite the mustard. And um, when I was a kid, back to from the first part of this uh, podcast, I told you I used to run around the little green in Glasgow, you know, when I first saw the guy with the guitar. I, another memory from that time is family favourites. 
belting out in the radio from somebody's house over the, the little football green and I remembered um, Nat King Cole's answer me and I always loved the song and the progression of it and I said, how would you fancy this? And she was sort of a bit taken aback and I said, you know, I can do it with another feel to it and so we did. And uh, again, that was a two-take job, live orchestra or everything, which I arranged. And um, thankfully for me, it was, you know, and her, it was the thing that sort of kicked off her career. And her association with the two Ronnies, which she was on every night, every Saturday for um, a few years. So it's a very, very long time ago, Jason, 1976 we're talking about. Producing other artists in that period, there was um, I spoke to Barry Ryan about four or five years ago, and he mentioned he talked about the the song "Brother." That's right. Yeah, Barry was brilliant. I mean, he was you know a much better singer and writer than I think he got credit for. And um, he was renting a place, I think. Now I had an office somewhere down near Harrods. And he, he asked me to go and see him, and um, 
he played the song and he said, Would you? I said, sure. Again, orchestral arrangement I had to do, which I did. So that was it. And at the same time, I got a call from uh, A&N Records, I think they were called, A&M Records. They wanted me to go. I went down and Jim Capaldi, he wanted me uh, from the um, traffic. Do you remember him? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Capaldi, um, he wanted me to produce him as well. But um, I didn't really, I wasn't too crazy about the material, so I sort of passed on that one, which was crazy. And uh, during my years of making bad decisions, I did the same with uh, Kirsty McCall. They, oh. they asked me to go and see her, and I went to see her in a little flat in Earl's Court, and we knocked around. We were going to write together and knocked around a few things. And um, I was just, you know... I've always believed that that game, call it and dress it, what you, whatever you want to do it, but it's pop music. I always think it's for young people. And um, she was in a different league from me uh, in terms of uh, fuel and enthusiasm. I was like, I'd sort of, you know, been around the block and um, it was a shame. It, it just never worked. But I tell you one thing, it was my fault. It wasn't her fault. And I, I'll, always, I'll always regret that. And she was lovely. Let's come back to your, your solo work. So you actually signed with Elton John's Rocket label. I did. That was another one. I got the call from um, when my decade days stopped. Uh, I was doing various other stuff. And I started doing uh, television commercials and just trying to get a touch of everything, just see how everything works. Uh, jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing, if you know what I mean. But then I had a call that uh, Elton, apparently he had always liked the stuff I had done, and he um, uh, asked David Croker if I would consider joining uh, Rocket Records, which was a very embryonic sort of company at the time. It only just started, so I thought, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but it was slightly embarrassing because I, I can remember. I, said, I keep telling these stories, but I promise you, every one of them are true. Back in, I think it was, well, it would have been 1970. The Marmalade uh, were invited to appear at the um, Medium Song Festival in Cannes in France in the January of, I think it must have been 1970. And uh, they used to beam this show. It's a big music convention and it gave all the people a chance to get away in the winter and come to the south of France. And so what they did is they put on this big show in the, the Grand Palais or whatever it was called. And uh, we were on the bill, but so was Elton, Ike and Tina Turner, various Eric Burden and War, and a load of French acts and Swiss and German. What they do is they beam it live all over Europe, apart from the, the UK. So anyway, we're all on the show. I got a chance to stand on the side and watch the Iquettes doing their dance motions as they were singing um, Day Tripper, I think it was. It was brilliant. But anyway... Um, we now cut to, you know, half an hour after the show and we're all in the bar at the Carrollton Hotel in Cannes and Elton had just released his first album, the Black Album, you know, the one with Paul Buckmaster producing it. And um, me being me as usual, I went up to him and I said, um, I think the album's fantastic, I've got it. He said, I'm really, he said, thanks so much. And I said, I tell you what, I said, if, he said, I'm due to go to America soon. He said, I'm not, you know, I'm a bit worried. I said, listen, I said, if you really stick at this, really, if you really stick at this, you're going to do really, really well. And I actually put my arm around them. And, you know, Jesus Christ almighty. 
you know, there's moments in your life when you think, why didn't you just shut up? It's a bit like the McCartney moment, do you know what I mean? But the only thing I can say about these stories is that they're all against myself. Mm. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, if you know what I mean. But anyway, I was asked, and so I joined Rocket. I did a couple of singles for them. And um, again, that just sort of petered out because um, it was a, I always thought Rocket was a bit half-hearted. I mean, I think the biggest hit they had was uh, when Elton did his thing with um, Kiki, wasn't it? Yeah. Nice people, nice people. But I think it was a, a probably a notion from Elton they wanted his own record company. And I think he signed a few acts, including Blue, uh, Glasgow band that had Hugh Nicholson in it. Um, but I don't, you know, good, good days. But we did a couple of, you know, good good records, I thought, um, one of which was Baby Hold On, uh, which I co-wrote with um, Chip Hawks from the Tremlers. Again, um, I was living in Surrey at the time, and he, he came to the house, and we were kicking around a few ideas, and we wrote this song, and um, half, well, three quarters of the song. And um, then he buggered off to Nashville. We decided he wanted to go over there and have a crack. So he went to Nashville. So while he was away, I finished the song and um, played it to Rocket. They loved it. They wanted to release it as a single. So um, I was going to see my brother in uh, Connecticut during that summer. And then I went to Los Angeles to talk to Rocket Records in Los Angeles about promoting it in America, et cetera, et cetera. So on the way back, he didn't know it, but I flew back to Nashville and just knocked him. Len Hawks' door and he was so delighted to see me and I brought him the record and I said and he was blown away with it whether he actually loved it but he um, he was doing some sessions with Roger Cook oh. who uh, who'd lived a great writer who'd lived out there for years and then uh, he'd come down to the studio tomorrow so anyway we went in the studio I saw Roger and some of the national musicians who were absolutely brilliant and Len was recording a solo album with a load of these guys helping so he said to me, um, oh, you must come and meet this guy. So he introduced me to Boodle Bryant. Oh. And Boodle Bryant is one of my heroes of all time. Him and his wife, uh, Felice, they wrote literally all of the Everly Brothers hits. Like Wake Up Little Susie, you know, you name it, Bye Bye Love, you know, Like Strangers. And um, he was such a nice guy. I remember Len saying to me, he'd said to Buddha Lewis, and he said, I'm looking for some songs for the album. He said, have you got anything? So he said, well, give me 10 minutes. And he came back, and he, he started with a piano, he sat him down and just this wonderful song. And uh, Len recorded it. Some days you tell me that you love me. Sometimes you tell me it's not true. I've been waiting, but love is a guessing game. It's like an Everly Brothers song, you know, it's just beautiful. And it's just this natural ability to be able to churn out melody and lyric is just something else, another planet.
Man of a thousand hits, I think he's absolutely. In fact, uh, in the Gaylord days, we recorded one of uh, him and uh, uh, Roger Greenaway's songs. We recorded one of them, and the other thing I did as well of theirs is that one of their songs I think had been recorded. Well, I did. I recorded it with a flying machine, but it was turned into the um, the big SO TV advert back in the. 19 forget about it and we, we we stripped the song down and used it for the big ESO commercial which ran for years and years and years so um, you know I know them very well and uh, Roger Greenham is such a lovely lovely guy And uh, but they, these guys are Tin Pan Alley Blue Blood just done everything mm. do you know what I mean They're, they were what was then called staff songwriters they just it was almost like the Brill Building in New York these guys would just churn out quality after quality after quality. I mean, the fortunes, you name it. You know, it's just all these great, great songs. It's worth mentioning your YouTube channel. You've put some but rarer material on there, like, like Lady Jane. Yeah, that's right. It gives people a chance to dig deeper into your career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember Lady Jane. It was um, That was one of those things I recorded at Tittenhurst Park, um, Ringo's Place, uh, right... I'll tell you when it would have been. It would have been 1980. And um, it's a really it's a good song, but it's got very lazy lyrics in it. You know, it was a quick churn out. And... Um, but strangely enough, Bruce Welsh really liked it, and he tried to persuade Cliff um, to record it. Uh, apparently, Cliff really liked it, but he wasn't too keen on the lyric because it was about a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Jane was a horse. Right. So uh, I don't think that uh, fitted too much into what he, what he wanted to do. But um, you know, it's certainly bare bones stuff. You know, there's no uh, no hiding place. There's some stuff on there in the, in the YouTube channel, so you can certainly have a look around. 
Something that uh, did get released, certainly on your very best back then compilation, was No Reply. That's a, a really good uh, solo track of yours. Is that from a, a similar period then? Yeah, thanks. That was, uh, there was a bunch of songs, uh, Lady Jane, No Reply. Um, I think there was three or four. There was another, another one, which will come back to me in a second. Uh, which uh, were all recorded in the, in the one set session and were really, I mean, No Reply, I think, is a brilliant track because um, I had um, some great players on it. Martin Jenner played a, a guitar on that with me and um, 
you know, it was just it's a good record, you know. And uh, by that time, uh, don't forget, um, MTV was about to kick off and the whole world was changing, you know. It was just a different... So it was time for me to move on. So even though I could beaver away and try and write songs, the question is, what do you do with them? Mm. Because you would go to record companies, even now you could go to a record company and meet a, a guy who's as old as your grandkid, you know, who's they've just got a totally different concept about how things should be. So it's really, it's, remember what I said earlier? It's a young man's game. Mm. I, I think that's why they're mm. running all these radio stations, not only here, but everywhere, stations like Boom Radio, where people of a certain age can actually look back and uh, and hear the things that they like, rather than having to go through a load of the stuff they don't like to hear one gem, if you know what I mean. So, um, but I'm afraid... That's life and um, time. The gangplank, you, you have to shuffle along one step every now and again. And that's, that's the way it works.
This uh, a song of yours that Hank Marvin covered, Don't Answer. That's, yeah. Did you actually release that yourself before Hank covered that? No, that was written. In fact, it was co-written with a young guy called Mark Haley mm-hmm. back about that time, about very early 80, 81. And um, it was written for him. He came to my house and um, he had a song called Mexico, which was really nice. But they wanted something a bit more punchy. So him and I turned out, don't answer, literally in a couple of hours and went in and recorded. It was a really good record, but um, it was played and Hank recorded it, which you know was astounding for me because he was you know, one of the big heroes. And uh, it was on a, an album he released, as the same with um, Hallelujah Freedom, because Alan Clark covered that as well from the Hollies. He um, covered it in one of his um, solo albums, or his only solo album, I think. And um, again, that's, you know, you sometimes you just smile and think, wow. When I used to have my ear up against the radiogram in my father's house listening to the shadows, and now Hank's recording one of my songs.
you were talking about that, like pop music being a, a young person's game. So through the 80s and 90s in particular, you spent much of your time composing and involved with the music of uh, Thomas the Tank Engine. How did that happen? Yeah, again, that was um, that was just one of them crossroads in life. <clears throat> when I told you earlier in the previous podcast, the studio at Titner's Park, Mike O'Donnell, who ran Ringo's affairs at the studio, etc., etc. He was a writer, a bit of a writer as well, and we'd done a couple of commercials together, television, music for television commercials. And um, he took Ringo up to London to meet this producer who um, had come up with this idea. She had bought the rights for the Reverend Audrey's uh, railway stories, famous books, which I had read to my own children. Um, they were written just slightly post-war years. They were actually written for Christopher Audrey, uh, the Reverend's son, just for keep him out of trouble while he had mumps. But um, Mike took the Ringo in for the session and where he had been asked if he would consider being um, the narrator on the first television series to be produced. And um, Mike, to his credit, had, you know, had the fourth thought to actually say to Britt Holcroft, this producer, and say, listen, have you done anything or sorted anything about your music yet? She said, well, yeah. She said, we've got a few composers who are submitting things. People like John Dankworth, um, Dennis King, various other people. And he said, well, he said, would you mind if, if um, Junior and I submitted something as well? She said, she was a bit taken aback because I think she thought he was Ringo's driver. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but she... Um, she said, yeah, sure. So anyway, we put together three pieces of music uh, and bunged them in, you know, just as an afterthought, not really thinking too much about it. So one was the theme, as everyone knows now. Uh, another one was what turned out to be Gordon's theme. And I think the other one was um, Edward's theme, or maybe Toby's theme, three pieces of music. Um, so they came back to us and said, well, you know, we'd really like you to do this, the usual producer thing, we don't have much money we, we want to do uh, the series will be, series one will be 26 five minute episodes, we'll need um, one of these is a theme music for the show but also we'll need um, what's called opening and closing titles plus a fast piece of music and a slow piece of music uh, we, we've only got X amount of pounds which was very low, including costs would you consider it? So we looked through it and we thought well you know, this is the usual shyster producer, you know, we don't have much money. You know, that's always the opening line. But anyway, we actually literally tossed the coin and we went for it. We said, yeah, OK. And that was it. So we did it. And of course, the first series was so successful. And then it went on to become even more successful that we get. Oh, and the other thing she said is, although we don't have much money, what we'll do is that if you if you would care to join it, we'll, we'll give you a participation in the profits from the right. from the concept. Which, yeah, it's great to say that now, but at the time, you know, you think, what's that going to amount to? Do you know what I mean? So um, we got involved and we have a great lawyer, David Landsman from Clinton's, and the, the contract was absolutely bomb-proof. So, um, and that was it. And then we went on to write music for seven twenty-six episode series plus 36 songs, I think, over a period of 20 years from... 83 right through until 2003 and um, instead of fast pieces of music slow we actually treated the whole thing as almost like mini films and um, wrote proper music for them and um, orchestral stuff etc and um, 
and uh, that resulted in um, a major contribution to the success, worldwide phenomenal success of the series, which makes everything else pale in, into insignificance. You can't, I cannot <laughs> tell you how, how popular that, that thing is throughout the world. My wife Susie and I were once in Windsor, uh, having a cup of coffee, sitting in a sort of outside cafe, and this Japanese couple came along with their two young children. They sat in the next table to us, and they were having a cold drink with the kids, and they had all the Thomas paraphernalia, sweatshirts and bags and everything else. And they started talking to Susie, and she said to them, threw away, well, my husband, and he co-wrote the music on it. And there was absolute silence, and they... Well, Junior I said, yeah, and they actually, it was almost like they'd met a god, because the Japanese, I mean, it was un, it was embarrassing, actually, and um, it had so much effect on children, and still does, do you know what I mean? But the funny thing is, my own children, by the time mm-hmm. I had started on that, they were past that age, and they always thought it was, Dad, why are you doing that, do you know what I mean? But I think they're quite happy I did. Absolutely. And we're featuring there once was an engine who ran away and, and that shows that you were you were able to emulate some some of the songwriters who, who worked on sort of earlier. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um you know, some of the music you know, if you like music like I do, um the music I grew up with, uh, all the music on the um Tom and Jerry cartoons like people like Scott Bradley, I always thought they were absolutely phenomenal scores and how they actually put this stuff together. And the two boys who wrote, the Sherman brothers who wrote the music for um, the Jungle Book and Lords of the Disney stuff, it's just, it's a, it's a period that's absolutely oozing in class in terms of melody and just being able to, you know, put together stuff for kids. Because I tell you what, I said right from the beginning, I said, don't treat kids you know, as if they don't know, they'll pick up on everything, and they did. And everything that we ever did, we had to make sure it was, you know, top quality. And there is a huge um, amount of fan sites around, you know, still playing the music. They they can tell you every note. They can tell you who oboe played on this. They can tell you because they remember it as children. And some of them have actually turned into musicians and composers themselves. And it's great when they say that they credit you with mm-hmm. lighting the fire for them at the beginning, which is a nice it's a nice thing to have in your life. You know what I mean? But there once was an engine who ran away. It was exactly that sort of thing. It was a, a silly story about an engine that ran away because it, th- it thought it wasn't um, required, which they made an episode. I think his name was Fergus. I can't remember. But they made this um, very dark episode where he ran away and everyone had to look for him. And don't forget, this is a children's program. So the whole thing was, but, you know, the way it turned out, you know, I always thought it should have been somebody like um, Michael Bublé. Mm you know, who sung on it, you know, one of them sort of things. So, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's only one little facet of all the music that was written. There once was an engine who ran away, just up and went, ran away, ran away, stacked up his tender and headed on the night to farewell.
Cutie be cutie go. So this year we're working on films, TV in terms of um, you know scoring and, and that sort of thing. And we have um, Sarah's theme and variations from the the Scalds Bridal, which was a BBC drama from the late nineties, and it shows the high quality of music and levels of production that's done done for that that song, for example, or stands up and could be in something for Netflix today, for example. Mm, thank you. That's very generous of you to say so. Thank you. Uh, no, it's just really what I, you know, that's what you do. The television uh, dramas that I get involved in, the first one was um, a program called Taking Over the Asylum, which ran, I think it was six, uh, six one-hour episodes, which uh, starred a very young David Tennant and ve- uh, various well-known actors and actresses. I've forgotten who they are at the moment, but I'm sure you'll remind me at some point. Uh, they were in it, and uh, that was about a disc jockey, a failed amateur disc jockey who ran a hospital radio station. And um, would you believe, in something like 1986, it, it won a BAFTA for the best television drama and beat Middlemarch. Um, so, I mean, all these sort of things are just so great to be able to, you know, get involved in. And... Um, for that particular production, Davy Tennant, he had to sing a song and, and play guitar at the same time, and he'd never played guitar in his life. So I had to teach him how to play the guitar for that particular little jingle I had written for this alleged radio station. Uh, but I had to teach him over the phone. Hmm. Put your finger there, put that finger there. And you, and you didn't have FaceTime or Zoom then, do you know what I mean? Hmm. But he, he was a lovely guy, and the cast, all of them were really... Um, Ken Stott was in it, and uh, Katie Murphy, and loads of people, some great Scottish actors, and it was very, very successful. And the good thing for me is they they keep rerunning it every now and again, so it's a, it helps pay for Antigua in March. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know the uh, the other one that you you, you mentioned is um, Scold's Bridal. That was the music for that was recorded at Maida Vale Studios um, with the BBC Radio Orchestra. Um, that was over Easter '68. Uh, it's not 68, sorry, 80, might have been 90, I can't really remember. Yeah, late 90s, I think. Yeah, yeah. That, was, um, that was the big Easter drama on BBC One for the weekend. It ran on the Saturday night and the Sunday night, and Miranda Richardson and uh, Bob Peck, dear Bob Peck, he was in it. Shan Phillips, the great Welsh actress, it was, and um, Kate Winslet's sister was in it as well. Very dark, very brutal, but a great drama. But uh, the music in that had to be... Uh, very dark and brutal. You know, another one of them reality points in your life, when I went into um, Maidaville Studios to record the BBC um, Radio Orchestra, the score for this, 
I think it was two two sessions per day. But anyway, the first day I got in there, and the sound guys were moving all the mics out, and I had the conductor's podium, you know, where I could put my scores and stuff. The copies were laying out all the parts, and the musicians were sort of filing in. And um, I was checking the, the line back to the control room, you know, the things you require. And, of course, we've got the big screen which is time-coded so you can make sure everything's bang on and works with every movement that, as you intended in the film. And I just looked across and at the side of the, um, just at the side of the screen on the wall, there was like a brass plaque next to the clock. And I thought, what's that? So anyway, because we'd recorded in there years and years ago with, with the Marmalade when they used to do it for their BBC radio program. So anyway, I, I sort of got off the podium, walked over, and I looked at the plank. And the plank said, "This is the la- very last uh, location for the very last ever Bing Crosby recording." Wow. <laughs> and I thought, I'm looking, and it gave the date, which I, I can't remember what the date was, but they put this big plaque in the wall. So the last time Bing actually warbled was in this studio where I was just about to stand in the podium. You know, we Junior Campbell from Glasgow, and I thought to myself. Christ almighty, if my old man could see me now. So it was, um, it's great when you get them moments because they're a real leveller.
and maybe that's a great way to close in the sense that um, our last chat being back to the marmalade is your life your own which you were referring to in the first part of the podcast reflecting on on your time in in music i mean it's the quality of the music is so strong but the stories and memories are uh, are so vivid and, and important well thank you for saying that again you're very generous i mean i can only tell you it was my life do you know what i mean and i'm very grateful and i've been saying you know as i get older i'm going to be 75 next birthday and as although i'm still junior which is ridiculous <laughs> william campbell jr but that's with how i'm known but um i do look at it all and i think and i've been telling everybody including my children i mean if it, the boat came and i ended up deed today i've had an absolutely fantastic life and uh it's been a you know an absolute joy all of it and music just does so much for you you know to educate you and um i just find it all very um very powerful funnily enough you probably won't believe this but i don't really like to talk about it too much Mm. i don't i'm never one to be sort of saying I did and I did it's only when I get nailed for programs like this but this final track uh, was actually I think the very last thing we ever recorded at Decca as a a Marmalade member and it was a song that uh, Dean and I had written and uh, his singing performance on it is absolutely astounding and it's this really along with Can You Help Me is how the band would I think would have developed had I not restless feet and uh but strangely enough uh the song is hugely um i don't know what the word is but it's uh prescient well no it's just it is your life you're in the lyric and i mean i haven't told very many people this before only the people who are close to me who know about it but i actually lost my own daughter uh five years ago a month before her 42nd birthday and this song was like almost like a premonition that the lyric and that was written three years before she was born but uh, it's amazing how things come around to bite you right on the bum isn't it mm-hmm. thanks a lot for your time thanks for taking the time to dig out all this stuff some of which I had actually forgotten I must admit alright take care and thanks again alright bye bye imagine thanks very much Jason all the best ta-ra bye bye Show.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.